privilege that we have to look into God's Word week by week and be taught. And may He help us as we open His Word now. Please turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2 at verse 17. That's page 261 in the Pew Bibles. Ruth chapter 2, we'll read through the end of chapter 3. Ruth 2.17. Let's hear God's word. So she, that is Ruth, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out of what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, and that people do not meet you in in any other field. So she stayed close by the young woman of Boaz, to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest. She dwelt with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turning to himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich, now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform his duty for you, then I will perform, it, then I will perform the duty for you. As the, Lord, as the Lord lives, lie down till morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. 
Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the woman, that the man had done for her. She said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Recently, I did a Google search on the slogan, Take Control of Your Life. I set up the search so that the only hits would be for the exact complete sentence. And I got 27 million hits. Now even allowing for duplication, that's a lot of hits. And there's at least one book by that title that's uh, in print at the moment. And many individual articles with titles include that slogan. So all this attention tells us something. I think it tells us that many people today feel that their lives are at least somewhat out of their control. They're in need of help. In many cases, they need more than human help. They need God's help and forgiveness. But not everyone's inclined to go that way, and so people just muddle along trying to find ways to take control of their lives. Well, like it or not, no human being can actually control, take control of his or her life fully. Even people with very well-ordered lives are not fully in control of what happens to them. A sudden accident could occur, or an untimely death of a close friend or relative, or you fill in the blanks. James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us of that in his epistle. He says, you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. The people in the book of Ruth that we've been looking at knew plenty about the uncertainty of life. The story began, as you may recall, with a famine in Israel, a really bad famine that seems to have lasted at least 10 years. We don't know how many people died during that time in the land of Israel. But we know that the famine was bad enough to drive Elimelech and Naomi and their sons out of Bethlehem, out of Israel, away to the country of Moab. And then, of course, while they were there, further trouble came upon their household, and Naomi lost both her husband and her two sons. You don't find the phrase, take control of your life, in the book of Ruth, or anything like it. There are no self-made people there. What you see in this book is individuals who knew that they didn't control their circumstances, but that God did. We've seen already how conscious they were of his overseeing and guiding the circumstances of their lives. Already we've seen how often his name has been on their lips. We know before that widows were particularly vulnerable in those times. In the book of Ruth, we see two widows, Naomi and Ruth, aware of their vulnerability, seeking help. Today, we see them seeking deliverance and security through the institution 
of the kinsman redeemer. We look at what that institution is, or rather was, and how it worked. And then in closing, we'll look at how the work of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament prefigured the work of the great kinsman redeemer in the New Testament, the one who alone can deliver helpless sinners like us from eternal death. Before parts of the sermon, first chapter 2, verses 17 through 23, we'll see redemption needed. Redemption needed, chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. Then, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, redemption sought. Redemption sought. Then, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, redemption promised. And finally, fourthly, we'll look at Jesus, the great kinsman redeemer. Redemption needed, redemption sought, redemption promised, and Jesus, the great kinsman redeemer. So, looking at verses 17 through 23, redemption needed. Ruth has spent the day gleaning in Boaz's field. She returns home in the evening with an ephah of barley, about half a bushel. That's about five gallons of dry measure. It's a large amount. Naomi is amazed asks where she gleaned, and then wishes blessing from God upon whoever it was that took notice of Ruth and allowed her to glean. Ruth tells her that the man was Boaz, and Naomi then wishes the blessing of Yahweh specifically upon Boaz. Notice how conscious Naomi is of the hand of God and his care for her household. This is a woman who has seen plenty of trouble. She has no illusions about being in control of her circumstances. She looks to God, and when she sees his hand in the events of her life, she gives thanks and prays God's blessing on the one who helped her. She's been doing that from the very beginning. Please look back with me to Naomi's first recorded speech in chapter 1, verse 8. This was when she was saying goodbye to Ruth and Orpah as she was leaving Moab. And she said at that time, May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She prayed God's blessing on her daughters-in-law because of their kindness to their dead husbands and to her. There was thankfulness there. And notice the similarity in what she says here in chapter 2, verse 20, when she hears of Boaz's generosity. Blessed be he of the Lord, she says, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. On both of these occasions, Naomi expresses thankfulness for God's kindness his sovereign kindness to the living and the dead, conveyed, of course, through others. The first time through Ruth and Orpah, the second time through Boaz. What we see here is a mature believer who has experienced hard times and, is re- and who is reflecting about God's covenant faithfulness through those hard times. In the past, in the present, and as we'll see in the future. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that Naomi is thinking about the future. As soon as she hears that it was Boaz who helped Ruth, she says, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Naomi introduces us here to the concept of the kinsman of the Redeemer, although that's not very clear from the translation that's in the pews, the New King James. The word that's translated close relative there is the word goel, and it means literally one who frees, one who frees. 
It's a very common word in the Old Testament, and it's most often translated simply as redeemer. One who in some way buys back or delivers another person or or someone's property. But in certain contexts in the Old Testament, like this context, it has a very specific meaning of a family member who frees. A family member who frees or a kinsman redeemer. Now you might wonder why why use the term kinsman. It's a very old word, rather unfamiliar. Why not just use the term close relative that's in our pew Bibles? The reason is that the term kinsman redeemer conveys a richness of meaning that's in that word goel that's not conveyed by a term like close relative. A kinsman is not just a close relative. A kinsman is a relative who has a bond with you. He is your next of kin. You have kinship with him. You might say that he is a kindred spirit. A kinsman has a strong personal commitment to you. This is very important for understanding what's going on in the book of Ruth. So what then actually is a kinsman redeemer? In Old Testament Israel, a kinsman redeemer was someone in a family who had responsibility for what is sometimes called the Leverett Law, as Tom mentioned this morning, or the Law of Redemption. That law was expressed in several related ordinances in God's law. Basically, the law was that when something really bad happened in a family, such as the death of the breadwinner or financial disaster, the nearest male relative who was not directly affected had the responsibility to take action for the sake of the rest of the family. The part of the law that relates to Ruth's situation is set forth in Deuteronomy 25. I'll read part of it again uh, just to refresh our memory. Uh, <clears throat> Moses says in, in Deuteronomy 25, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which he bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. So what it says is that if a man died and had no son, his nearest male blood relative had the responsibility of marrying his widow. That's the part of the law of redemption that's key in this story of Ruth. Now, having to marry your, de- your de- deceased brother's widow may sound pretty odd to us today. And of course, we don't regard it as something that Christians need to do or should do today. But there was good reason for it in, the Old, Testament is- in Old Testament Israel. God himself gave this particular ordinance to meet two of the needs of the family of the deceased Israelite. First, the need of the deceased man's widow to be provided for and cared for. That's obvious. The widow would have the provision and protection that marriage afforded. And secondly, this law was set up to help the family hold on to its property because the first son born to the marriage of the kinsman to the widow would be considered to be the son of the man who had died. That doesn't... We don't automatically think that way, but that's the way it was. And so the deceased man's property would remain in the family because it would be passed to his son, in quotes, the first son born of the marriage of the kinsman to the widow. 
There are several other parts of the law of redemption that don't concern us today. Another part of the law will come into view in Ruth chapter 4. So, as we noted, Naomi is listening carefully to what Ruth is saying. And she comments that Boaz is a redeemer of ours. Now, any Israelite household where the husband had died and left no son might be expected to seek help through the law of redemption. Any widow with no son would be in tough shape. But Ruth's situation as a widow and a a stranger was worse and would be even worse again after Naomi had died. Presently, Ruth lived with Naomi in the family, family home in all likelihood. But when Naomi died, the property would not pass to Ruth because she was a stranger, a Moabite, a woman without a husband. The property could not legally pass to her. She'd be left without home or property unless the law of redemption could be successfully invoked in her case. It's not just that she'd be financially destitute. We've mentioned before that Ruth, even at this time, had to be concerned about basic physical safety. This was the time of Judges, you remember, a wild time in Israel, a disorderly time. The last two verses of chapter 2 underline Ruth's vulnerability. It says this, And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with Boaz's young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. After Naomi died, Ruth would be all the more vulnerable. And so we see that Ruth is very much in need of help. She needs a redeemer. But redemption won't just happen. Someone will have to take initiative. That's the next main point. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, we see redemption sought. Redemption sought. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But not sought immediately. The last verse of chapter 2 says that Ruth keeps gleaning through the barley harvest, which happened in April, and on through the wheat harvest in June. During these two months, it seems like nothing significant is happening. But then there's a burst of activity. Ruth, <clears throat> trusting, trusting in God, takes a daring risk at night. A carefully planned but bold initiative. Boaz, responding, acts with honor, wisdom, and dispatch. And with breathtaking speed, actually in less than 24 hours, the whole problem is solved. At the end of chapter 3, we're in the middle of the 24-hour period when there's a brief break in the action. And that's where we land today. Ruth, Naomi directs Ruth in this venture. It's clear that Naomi has been thinking and planning carefully during this quiet period. All along, she's been concerned for Ruth to be provided for. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, again in her first speech, she says to Ruth and Orpah, The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. She knows the financial situation and physical vulnerability of a young widow and prays that God will give her daughters-in-law rest. The term means security. The security of a husband. 
And here again in chapter 3, verse 1, she has the same concern. Shall I not seek security for you? The same word. The difference this time is that there is a worthy man to whom Ruth can legitimately appeal. We might wonder why Naomi lays out the plan for this meeting the way she does. It's a detailed plan. It covers four verses. She's evidently thought carefully about it. But why in the middle of the night at the threshing floor? Does her plan not make Ruth put herself and her reputation and all her hopes at risk by this hazardous midnight venture? There's been a lot of speculation by commentators about why Naomi planned this meeting this way. But I think the best explanation may be the simplest. She planned it that way because Ruth needed to speak with Boaz without others seeing them together or hearing what they were saying. And that at that time of year, the threshing floor at midnight was the best place in time, maybe the only place in time, where they could talk without being observed or overheard. At harvest time, men often slept at the threshing floors because the threshing floors were wide open areas where the grain was subject to being stolen. Stored there temporarily in piles until the threshing and winnowing were completed and then moved to more secure storage. A few years later, for example, in 1 Samuel 23, King David was told that the Philistines were robbing the threshing floors at Kyla. So Boaz might well have slept there quite often during the harvest period. And so if Ruth wanted to speak to him at this time of year, without being observed, the threshing floor at midnight may simply have provided the best opportunity. And so Ruth now, trusting her mother-in-law and trusting God, agrees to do what Naomi has said. She waits till Boaz is ready to lie down, observes where he settles, and waits till he is asleep. She then comes quietly, uncovers his feet, and lies down. Then, later when he awakes suddenly, she identifies herself and says, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That's verse 9. Well, what's going on here? This might sound like something we don't want to hear about. Some, of suge- some commentators have suggested that Ruth was trying to seduce Boaz. But the text actually gives no hint of sexual impropriety, and we need to state that clearly. By uncovering Boaz's feet, and then by saying to him, spread your wings over your servant, Ruth is asking him to marry her. For, as she says, you are a redeemer. That's very clear. That is the purpose of the visit. But there's no textual basis for suggesting that anything sinful occurred that night. Ruth simply asked him to marry her because he was a kinsman of her deceased husband. And after their conversation, she lay at his feet till she got up. Now, it may seem surprising to us that in this situation, in a patriarchal society, we read about a woman asking a man to marry her. Even today in our much more egalitarian society, it's still more often that the, that the man is the one who does the asking. But this is not just a marriage proposal. It's an appeal for redemption. And by the nature of the case, the person who needs the redemption, Ruth, 
has no one, no male family member to appeal on her behalf. Ruth, therefore, has to appeal for herself. And so when she asks Boaz to spread your wings over your servant, it can also be translated, spread the corner of your garment over your servant. She isn't just proposing marriage. She is legitimately invoking the law of redemption as a widow with no son. One more thing about Ruth's appeal here. There's a beautiful connection with the first conversation that Boaz and Ruth had in the harvest field. In that conversation, you may remember, Ruth at one point expressed her amazement at Boaz's kindness to her. Since she was a foreigner. And Boaz said then that he had heard all that Ruth had done for Naomi and all that she had given up by leaving Moab, etc. And then at that time, Boaz sought blessing from God to be granted to Ruth. He said, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord repay your work and the full reward be given you by Yahweh, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. Ruth has indeed taken shelter under the wings of Yahweh. Now she comes to Boaz, who had prayed for this blessing to be upon her. And she asks him to spread his wings, same word in the original, over her as her husband and redeemer. It's beautiful, isn't it? Boaz now has the opportunity to be to Ruth that great blessing that he prayed will be upon her that day in the field two months before. So we'll look now in verses 10 through 18 at how Boaz responds. And we'll see redemption promised. Redemption promised. Boaz, we're told, is startled. But he responds with much grace. When he recognizes who Ruth is and what she's asking for, he responds right away by praying the blessing of God upon her. Now, now what he's blessing her here, what he's blessing her here for in verse 10 may initially seem a bit unclear. But when you look at it carefully, you can see that this, in this verse he's wishing God's blessing on Ruth for continuing to seek the welfare of her mother-in-law instead of looking out for herself. That's what he's blessing her for. Ruth surely needs to get married if she's to survive in the long term. And it appears that there have, there have been younger men in Bethlehem whom she, whom she could have gone after, seeking marriage. Marrying a younger man would have solved her problems, in a sense, but it would have left Naomi in the lurch if he were not a kinsman. Instead, for Naomi's sake, Ruth has waited patiently for God to provide trusting her mother-in-law to direct her about how to proceed. From what Boaz says in verse 10, he's clearly an older man, but since he is Naomi's kinsman, he is able to deliver both Naomi and Ruth. And Ruth is willing and actually happy to marry him. Boaz recognizes that Ruth's commitment nevertheless involves a measure of sacrifice, and he blesses her for it. That's what he's saying in verse 10. And Boaz recognizes also what courage it must have taken for Ruth to come to him at night with no one around. What a risk she had taken. He says to her not to be afraid. And then right away, 
He settles her fears by telling her that he will do what she asks. And he doesn't need any convincing to do that. He tells her that everyone in Bethlehem knows that she is a virtuous woman or a worthy woman or a woman of excellence depending on what translation you're using. He uses a word that's loaded with meaning in the scripture, the word ha'il. This word is part of the title that he uses to describe Ruth here, a worthy woman. And it's the exact same wording that the author of Proverbs 31, which we read earlier, uses to describe that amazing woman, that woman of godly character, diligence, kindness, fruitfulness, that much respected woman in Proverbs who is able to do everything and do it well. In Proverbs, she's called a virtuous wife because in Old Testament Hebrew, the same word meant woman or wife. But it's the exact wording by which Boaz describes Ruth. Boaz is giving Ruth high praise. Of course, there are many godly women and noble women in the Bible. But somewhat what amazingly, the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture, has determined that in the whole Bible, only Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, the poor woman who has neither money nor standing, the gleaner, only she, in the whole Bible, is given this title as so rich in meaning, woman of excellence. Boaz, by the Spirit, has given Ruth the highest praise possible. Also, there's a beautiful correspondence between how Boaz describes Ruth here and how the narrator described Boaz back in chapter 2. The phrase, woman of excellence, by which Boaz describes Ruth here in chapter 3, is the feminine form of the phrase by which Boaz was introduced to us as a man of excellence in chapter 2, verse 1. As you may remember, the phrase by which Boaz is introduced in chapter 2 is translated in a variety of ways in our English translations. And this variety of translation makes it harder to see the true connection of this phrase with other scriptures. But in the original language, the beautiful parallel between the description of Boaz in chapter 2 as man of excellence and the description of Ruth in chapter 3 as woman of excellence is clear. And of course we've already seen excellence of godly character in both of them. And we're seeing it again here in this midnight meeting. What we've been witnessing throughout this short book is God bringing together a truly marvelous couple. Two people in whom he has poured out his spirit, forming them both into people who are in every way full of God's grace and all the excellence of character that that grace produces. A man of excellence and a woman of excellence. Chapter 4 will show us more fully just how significant Boaz and Ruth actually are in the unfolding of God's great plan. That's yet to be seen. But in the meantime, we should praise God for his grace displayed in both of these two marvelous people. We need to hurry on. In verse 12, Boaz explains that while he is indeed a redeemer, there's another man who can redeem Ruth who is a closer relative than he is and who therefore is what we call right of first refusal. This is doubtless a little daunting to Ruth, a possible setback. But Boaz makes clear that he isn't going to dilly-dally. He tells her that he'll ask this man in the morning. 
If he will redeem, that will be good. And if he will not, then Boaz says, I will redeem you. The words that Ruth most wanted to hear. I will redeem you. And he doesn't just tell Ruth that he will redeem her. He swears an oath in the name of God. He says, as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. He's dead serious about this. And he wants Ruth to know it. Well, the next day we'll we'll reveal what will happen to Ruth. Will it be marriage to Boaz, who has shown himself to be a man of excellence and shown her much kindness, or to some other man about whom we know nothing? Ruth lies at Boaz's feet till early morning and gets up while it's still dark. Boaz tells her to tell no one that she's visited the threshing floor. And he kindly gives her a large amount of grain for her mother-in-law. Ruth goes home, tells Naomi all that has happened, and shows her the grain. Ruth is doubtless anxious. But Naomi expresses confidence in Boaz's character, that he will attend to this matter quickly, this very day. And at that point, there's a break, and the chapter ends. The narrator keeps us on the edge of our seats. Stay tuned. So that's where we leave the story of Ruth today. But I'd like to look now, in closing, at how the Old Testament concept of the kinsman redeemer points us forward to the greater kinsman, the greater redeemer in the New Testament. So we'll look fourthly at Jesus, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. We've known already how much Ruth needed human kinsman redeemer we need one too though in a different sense let me ask you a question if you're a Christian today what was it that brought you to seek Christ everyone has a different story I'm sure but I'm sure of this too that if you're a Christian today at some point along the way you became aware of how desperately sinful you were, in, you were in God's sight and how much you needed forgiveness and redemption from sin. In the final analysis, what drives us all to Christ is a sense of our desperate need to be redeemed. I'd like to remind us, all of us about that today. Otherwise, I'm afraid we, we can take our salvation for granted and become spiritually indifferent. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, is very clear about this, about how bad our situation is in God's sight. He says this in chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Think about that. We just can't abide by all things written in the law. We sin in a variety of ways every day. And Paul says here that we are actually under God's curse because of our sins. Remember, remember that terrible picture Jesus gave in Matthew 25 of the day of judgment. When he said to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The consequences of sin are dire and we are helpless. 
We need a Redeemer. There were three requirements in the Old Testament for the Goel, the kinsman Redeemer. All of these point forward to the great Redeemer. First, he must be a member of the family, a kinsman. Second, he must be willing to redeem. Third, he must be able to redeem. He must have the means. Same again, he must first be a member of the family, a kinsman. He must be willing to redeem. Third, he must be able to redeem. He must have the means. Jesus Christ fulfills all three of these requirements. I want to read a brief New Testament passage that shows that. And then in closing, I want to focus particularly on one of those requirements and show how Jesus fulfills it so beautifully and perfectly for us. In my opinion, the best concise statement that shows what a complete kinsman redeemer Jesus is is found in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This passage shows us just how perfectly Jesus fulfills all three of these requirements. Number one, was he a member of our family? Yes, it says that Jesus came as a man. He is fully human, not just a divine spirit. He is a human being like us, our kinsmen. Two, was he willing? Certainly, he came to earth for the express purpose of redeeming, humbling himself. Three, was he able to redeem? Yes, indeed. The passage teaches that he is fully God, fully human, sinless. He and only he is able to redeem. He is the perfect kinsman redeemer. Now, as we close, I'd like to focus our attention on one of those three points. That Jesus, to be our redeemer, had to be a member of our family, our kinsman. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, when he was arrested, all of his disciples, without exception, forsook him and fled. And so in those dark hours leading up to the crucifixion on that terrible Friday, when he was tried before Pilate and before Herod, when he was at the mercy of his enemies, there was no one to be to him a companion, a brother, a kinsman. Even more terrible was the crucifixion itself when the wrath of God was poured out on him and he cried out in his utter abandonment, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly alone, cut off from the Father as he bore our sins, and without a human friend. No brother, no kinsman in his sufferings. Yet two days later, on resurrection morning, with the cross behind him, 
with Satan vanquished, with sin atoned for, and redemption, his disciples' redemption, and ours, accomplished. Jesus sent to his disciples who had abandoned him a wonderful message. He sent it through Mary Magdalene after he had made himself known to her in the garden. This is John chapter 20. You remember when she realized who he was, she cried out and took hold of him and held on to him for sheer joy. And then he said this to her in verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. My brethren, he called them, after what they had done. My brethren. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that unbelievable? And just to be sure that they understood what he meant, he made it unmistakably clear, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Despite the way they had treated him, despite the way we had treated him, he redeemed them, and then told them that he was in every way, in the fullest sense, a kinsman. Jesus Christ is our kinsman, too. He identifies fully with us and with all whom he has redeemed. The author to the Hebrews says that in chapter 2 that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And later in chapter 2 that in, in all things he had to be made like his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Fellow Christian, have you ever felt completely alone or abandoned? Completely abandoned. Have you ever felt that no one understands or cares? You may be wrong about being totally alone, for if you're a Christian, you may have more friends than you realize. But even if you're temporarily completely alone, Jesus, your kinsman, is truly with you, caring for you, supporting you, strengthening you. Perhaps the well-known child's song says it best. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Let's look down now. Father, we thank you for that we indeed do have a great Redeemer and one who is identified fully with us and is indeed our kinsman. We thank you, Lord, for that great love that he showed by willingly coming to earth for the express purpose of redeeming us. And we pray, Lord, that you would increase our love in return and our fruitfulness. Lord, we turn from our ways of righteousness so easily, falling back into old paths that are not good. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to us. You remain our kinsman, our redeemer. And we can trust in your love 
that you will never let us go. Thank you for this. Thank you for this book of Ruth. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.